right, everybody. Finally, we are here. I've got Samantha with me. It's Jani Organically, and this is kind of to be considered the soft launch of my new podcast, which is called Very, Very, Quite Contrary. And I think today's topic is very fitting um, for for that kind of title, because we're going to be talking about vaccines. Right now, uh, we are experiencing what the mass media would have you um believe is a measles epidemic, a measles outbreak, pandemic, pick a word. And we think that this is going to begin driving legislation to continue pushing for mandated vaccines, eliminating personal belief exemptions, religious exemptions. And we think it is important for uh, the listener, the reader to understand uh, this vaccination concept as a whole, some of the history behind vaccination, some of the diseases, the eradication methods, and what the role is of those who develop the vaccines and their responsibility of adverse effects and reporting and anything and everything in between. So uh, I've got Samantha here with me. Say hello, Samantha. Hi. I'm so glad we're doing this. Again, you guys yeah, recorded again. this yesterday, and um, we're, this is take two, because we love you so much. We are sleep deprived, and so, um, yeah, but we're going we're gonna to do our best to just kind of give you a high-level overview of what this, uh, this post is that we wrote in response to the New York Times opinion editorial about how to inoculate against anti-vaxxers. And we're going to address the claims made in that article with actual facts, um, which they conveniently had seemed to have overlooked. So um, we're definitely going to get to that. And But we are also... C- posting a full or full document um, with more data, links to sources so that you can go and um, dive deeper, um, that you can access that information directly on my blog and then utilize that in any way you see fit. And we'll talk about ways like action steps um, at the end of the podcast. So, so, um, but yeah, Samantha and I are both, you know, if, if, you know either one of us you know we're very big on um, wellness and advocating for personal health and personal rights parental rights and um, medical freedom and so we think it's important to to talk about these topics you've heard us talk about many of them already on our instagram pages and this is this is the podcast version to kind of um Try and try and cover as much ground as we can um, for people who may uh, not have time to sit down and read our thirty-page uh, document. <laughs> right. I'm not sure if it's a good thing or not, but we're not limited to fifteen-second segments here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, which is why um, when we recorded yesterday, we tried we tried to cover a lot, and the podcast ended up being two hours and forty-five minutes. So, <laughs> we're we're going to try and cut that at least in half. Um, so, uh, yeah, let's, uh, do you want to say anything, Samantha, before we get started? No, I think we should jump in. All right. So we wrote this article, uh, it's titled Dear Who, which is the World Health Organization, the CDC, and the New York Times, your industry bias is showing. So the post that they, or the, the article they wrote, um, again, is how to inoculate against anti-vaxxers. And so 
we just believe there's a lot of misinformation out, out there. And in their article, they admit that people that are truly anti-vaccination only apply to 2% of the, the population. And so while a, a lot of others sit along a spectrum of just hesitancy, and rightly so, we've got a lot of questions, we've got a lot of um, concerns about ingredient safety and testing, and um, and whose role is what. And so whether you're pro-vax or anti-vax, we are collectively, the common ground we have is that we're anti-mandated vaccines. So that's our our unifying front is that we can't sit by and watch pharmaceutical companies introduce um, via their sponsors legislation into place to take away your parental rights, your medical freedom, um, because that's just the tip of the iceberg. That's where it's going to start. Mm-hmm. We believe it's going to begin to encroach further and further and further into your life. So even if you believe that vaccines are safe and effective and they work for you, um, this is a dangerous, slippery slope um, of of what could come. Um, yeah. They're, they're going to encroach on something that you do actually care about maybe in a few years, and this gives them grounds to do so. So... Um, yeah, do you do you want to talk about the WHO article on the global health threat, how, how we've been um, diagnosed as? Yeah, so um, I'm sure a lot of you who are listening have already seen it, and some of you probably are the ones that even sent it to us, and that was kind of what inspired us to go along this, this journey of writing a response, because so many people have been reaching out, and they're saying, oh, this is all over my Facebook timeline, it's everywhere. And it, this all started originally with the World Health Organization's list of the top 10 global health threats. And we'll get into later on in the article, you know, global health threats versus health threats of developed versus undeveloped countries. But they started this article with the global health threats. And on that list was vaccine hesitancy. And the New York Times took that list and ran with the vaccine hesitancy category and labeled us all anti-vaxxers. And as all of you know, if you have any questions about vaccines, you're automatically bucketed into that category and, you know, you'll lose friends or followers, etc. People are just repulsed by that term and it creates mm-hmm. a division among people who would otherwise have common ground. So correct. They and sort I think- of just lumped us all in. Yeah, and I think most people who are um, what we keep referring to as like the discerning adult, uh, someone who is wise, that nobody would ever bucket themselves in either category as completely anti-vaccine or completely pro-vaccine in in all cases, because the educated, intelligent person is consistently looking at the evolving information and questioning the science and looking at, you know, innovations as they become available and what what new discoveries are, are happening in terms of the immune system and the gut and yep. um, the uh, what what chronic health conditions are we dealing with now and and um, you know just what whatever it may be and whatever science uncovers how does that play into what we've been doing for 50 years um, there there's um, there's a lot to to learn still, as we would all agree. Um, so what we did 50 years ago may not be used today because we know so much more. And so um, 
with that, if there if there is some sort of um, handle that an industry is profiting off of, and they refuse to um, improve because uh, it would lose them money, that would um, be worth exploring, wouldn't you agree? I mean, if if the pharmaceutical industry um, has a, has a capital on vaccine profits, um, and they are exempt from ever being held liable from any any um, injuries or deaths that occur, um, th- there's no motive for them to improve. Um, there's no motive for them to look at other options. Um, exactly. Eradicating or protecting people. And it's not just the government itself that needs to maintain those checks and balances to hold the pharmaceutical industry accountable. It's also the people. Right. Which is yeah. what we're trying to get started Ex- with this response. Exactly. And in, in in the New York Times article, they basically say that we are some organized effort. And I, I am not a part of any sort of organized effort. I feel like we're all just learning on our own and sharing information. And for some reason, they think that we've got some secret society where we are <laughs> um, taking over the internet with this information. And if there is one of those clubs, let me know because I haven't been invited. Um, yeah. <laughs> So, but in regards to like not being held liable, if anybody anybody doesn't already know, there was a um, the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act of 1986. It basically uh, transferred liability for um, vaccines, any any damages, injuries, um, deaths over to the taxpayer. That um, the vaccine manufacturers are now free to do as they please, um, and in that in that same Act the Human Health Services, uh, the HSS, were tasked with um, maintaining, uh, improving upon vaccine safety um, because that act acknowledged that there were too many adverse effects, and so the HSS was told you um, you are tasked with making these safer, that making the studies better, so that we can improve upon vaccine safety and. Um, and then, um, so we are going to talk about whether or not they did their job uh, with that in a minute. Um, but just just to keep kind of a um, on a roll here with pharmaceutical industries, um, more and more we see some of these diseases that um, we that are not a concern, uh, but they're bucketed in to single um, to other vaccines like MMR is measles, mumps, and rubella. Um, Tdap is tetanus, diphtheria, and pertussis. So you're you're seeing more and more of these combination vaccines, and more so since the 1986 Act. You you obviously see a lot more vaccines yep. added to the schedule. Whereas, Which is just you know, another way of like removing choice, right? Because right, I only want the disease, measles vaccine, but you can't get that. Yeah, every disease get... and every vaccine should be able to be evaluated on its own, but unfortunately, they've taken away the option of doing that. And right. before you go on, I don't want to sidetrack you, but before you go on, just for those who don't know. The HHS, the Health and Human Services, oversees CDC, NIH, World Health Organization, and a couple others. Yeah. Good point. And so now we're seeing, um, so there was a, um, there's an introduction of a new vaccine that they want to put on the market. It's a six in one. I can't remember the name of it, Samantha. Um, Infinrix, I think? No, or, Infin- no Infinrix. Um, that's the one that's already on the market. 
Yeah, Infomersk is already in the in the market, and um, it's used more internationally. And uh, they had an independent evaluation done, um, not because they asked for it, but because somebody else did it. And they showed that there were no protein antigens for any six of those uh, diseases that they claimed to protect against. And Which that means was like, all risk and no benefit if it absolutely. doesn't even contain what it's supposed to. Right. And so it obviously has, you know, a, a lot of things in there, including um, 65 chemical toxins they, they found and 65% of which they didn't, they couldn't identify. And, um, and with that same Infinrix uh, six in one, there was a classified document from the manufacturer, which is GlaxoSmithKline that revealed almost a thousand, I don't know, there's 800, I think complications that were um, uh, of adverse effects to that vaccine. Five, over 500 of them were not listed. And there were 36 deaths within three days of the vaccine. And they um, didn't inform the the public. And so on, on our um, blog post, you'll have do- links to all of this. You can read the document for yourself. Um, but yeah, there is, there was a new one, um, a new six in one that's supposed to be coming to the States soon. I can't remember the name. I think it starts with an H. Um, yeah, I, I can just, it's called. Yeah, I'm blanking on it too. The only one. Vaxellus. Okay. Vaxellus, and it's uh, manufactured by Sanofi, which um, has the safety has not been um, studied in children over 15 months. Um, the, uh, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that hasn't been hasn't been studied. The genetic polymorphism and the safety studies study stop at five days post vaccination. Um, there's a lot of concerns about it. So. Yeah, and then would, it's in, uh, that's in addition to, you know, the concerns we're going to list out here. And also, I mean, th- section 13.1 of every vaccine insert, which says it hasn't been tested for carcinogenicity or right. mutagenicity uh, or fertility impairment. Which, I don't know, I think those are pretty it's, big deals. Yeah, those are those are concerning things. And so with the pharm- pharmaceutical companies, they're, um, you know, they are, will take... Um, what 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 they can do and um, which some of these things are quite concerning uh, that they can actually fund studies that prove their vaccine are safe so if you get a study from somebody that says oh no 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 this MMR vaccine is totally proven safe and you scroll down and look at the bottom and see oh who funded this oh the manufacturer funded this um, and you look at the authors and you see if that same manufacturer is paying them directly for other things. Like you can see, start to see some, um, some you know behind the scenes handshaking going on. Because again, we'll link to this stuff on our on our blog that um, industry funded um, studies have uh, anywhere from twenty three to thirty five percent higher outcomes in you know saying that they're a positive um, um, effect. Uh, that they that they work um, that they convey a positive message regarding their product, and and the FDA actually did an a- analysis that showed that actually only fifty one percent should have been positive, whereas on paper it was more like ninety four percent. It appeared as though like ninety four percent of our studies are positive, but really it was only half um, because they hadn't published the ones that came out the way that they didn't want them to. 
and and again you can you know do all these studies you're like oh I'll choose to only publish these ones and I can pay the editor of the journal to get it published so um these are all legal things that the industry is allowed to do which is any and all of these should be concerning and with placebo controls uh, they don't need to use an inert placebo control they can refer you'll, you'll see in study after study they'll refer to placebo that they did it against a placebo and when you dig deeper you'll see that they are comparing it against another vaccine or against a, an injection of an adjuvant which is usually aluminum and so it's not um, typically a, like a saline injection something that is inert and um, so Again, not not adequate safety studies being done. I had to take a breath there for a second. Um, and yeah, these pharmaceutical companies can, um, they give millions of dollars to authors of medical textbooks. Um, you know, a lot of the um, vaccine education that doctors and nurses get are from the pharmaceutical reps. Um they, the industry spends the most money lobbying in Washington, I'm talking like $4 billion in the last 20 years, and they contribute to uh, members of Congress, which is, I think 2018 alone was just $27 million. And so when you're just looking at the big picture of scientific, scientific integrity, um, it's almost impossible to view that, that science with that amount of corruption and influence and bias um, that the pharmaceutical companies need to be removed from that process. They shouldn't be allowed to have that kind of um, control and power over the science. Yep. And just one other thing that just came, popped in my mind after you went through that list, and it's already pretty lengthy, but that doesn't even discuss the fact that certain employees have gone from the CDC to vaccine manufacturers or to pharmaceutical companies and vice versa, which is no, also... You're right. You're right. I feel like there was um, the former director of the CDC, right, Um, of something. I know I wrote about it on um, something else. I'll I'll bring it up when I when I find it. Um, But yeah, let's so so maybe we should talk about HSS and the lawsuit and um, you can take it away. Yeah, so we have the verbiage. We have the verbiage in the post so you guys can read exactly what the National Vaccine Injury Act of 1986 says. But the main point we're focusing on here is that part of that act required them to, the secretary of HHS, to compile a biennial report, meaning every two years they would compile a report. And the entire goal was to evaluate safety of vaccines and also to uh, make sure there are less adverse reactions. So to reduce the risks of adverse reactions to vaccines. So ICANN, Informed Consent Action Network, they submitted a FOIA request, a Freedom of Information Act request for any information or documentation related to that work done by HHS, because that's what was required of them in that Vaccine Injury Act. And I'm not sure how much they enforce this, but I have read that they are supposed to respond to these requests within 20 days. And ICANN didn't get a response for over a year. Mm -hmm. So they filed a lawsuit and they just wanted one of three things. They wanted documents or records proving that it was done. 
um, or a response uh, refuting why they couldn't release those documents or a statement confirming that they didn't actually do the work. Mm. And so they got a court order. They ended up with a court ordered stipulation confirming that HHS had not acted in its duties regarding vaccine safety. So that means interesting. They failed, they failed to submit a report for the last thirty years. Yeah, which is alarming. Like alarm bells should be going off, but this this yeah. message has not been. Um, blared through this so-called megaphone that is our territory on the interwebs. Yeah, I don't think I I don't think I saw a single news report. Mm-mm. I mean, everything that was being reported about this was through independent people through blogs, you know, and right. people were obviously reaching out to us about it, but no one sent me any links. I never saw like I said, I don't really watch like main media, media. yeah. But you guys, the audience that, you know, the community that we've built on our blog or Instagram or whatever, it's kind of like our news source. And I usually have someone sending me links mm-hmm. and no one sent me anything. So I really don't feel like this probably made it to any mainstream. Right. Yeah. So, which is, so, which is unfortunate. It doesn't feel like it is. It's this is in, a huge this story. This is part of informed consent. You can't say vaccines are safe and effective, including this these new vaccines that have come out since 1986, because we actually haven't ever done any true placebo controls um, on them. And we our goal hasn't ever been to improve upon the efficacy or um, the, the safety of them. We're comparing them against these older vaccines prior to 1986 and saying, oh, the adverse effects are the same so it's good enough right and i think jumping back to the the comments about the media i mean if you look at who contributes to our media it's pharmaceutical companies so with knowing the the relationship that the pharmaceutical industry has with the hhs and the all of the organizations that hhs oversees like the cdc and who and nih those relationships are a clear conflict of interest. And so even if the media wanted to report, my question is, would they be able to, considering where their funding is coming from? Yeah, exactly. And just um, on that point, I did find some of the information. It was on um, one of my blog posts, is that um, the former CDC director, um, at the time that I wrote this, I don't know if she is now, but she was... um, Julie Gerberding, She's president of a leading um, vaccine manufacturer. So she went from running the CDC to running a vaccine manufacturing company, which is a weird little transition there. And then there was a former NIH director overseeing a drug research lab, the same one where some scientists had financial interests into um, conducting experiments in their lab, including one that killed a patient. So um, yeah, there, there, there's a lot when you, when you start to pull back the curtain and see what's going on behind the scenes and, and who's jumping from whose bed. Um, they're, they're all inter, inter... And this is not some big old like conspiracy theory kind of... Um, but it, it's, it's out there. It's, it's, not, it's not hidden opinion. It's, a, it's documented fact. Yep. Absolutely. So... Moving on with the HHS ICANN situation. So ICANN received a response from the HHS and it was about 11 pages and there were a lot of people in the pro-vaccine or pro-mandate community that were accusing ICANN of 
basically losing the battle because they hadn't responded after the HHS gave their response because HHS cited over a thousand studies. And just to give you a, a picture of who signed off on this, it was the HHS, the CDC, the National Vaccine Program Office, the Office of General Counsel, Office of Government and Community Affairs, the FDA, the Health Resources and Services Administration, the NIH, the Agency for Healthcare and Research Quality, and the Assistant Secretary for Financial Services. So they all said this is the best we have. Anyone. Yes. Yeah. So anyone who's anyone who has anything to do with public health, vaccination, etc., signed off on this 11-page response that included over a thousand studies. And so I can did the responsible thing, and they took their time to actually read the studies every word and to evaluate it and then sent back an 80 page response well and can i just say though i mean when when because i know that some people who do have um are brave enough to speak up and post something that inevitably somebody will um the other side tend to send studies back if if they're doing this in an appropriate fashion um they're they're sending some studies back disproving their their claim or attempting to and Every time that's ever happened to me, it's always been an industry-funded um, uh, uh, study, and mm-hmm. obviously there's no inert placebo control, and um, and they ha- you can tell that they haven't read it because these are like these are really long studies, and when I read these studies, sometimes. They, I can get through it in like a day or so, but I've spent weeks on some studies where I'm looking at the translation. Because if you're using like your critical thinking skills, you're not just looking at the title and the conclusion. You're you're looking at like, okay, well, they concluded this, but you know, in their analysis, they showed this, and you can see how right. you you can misrepresent it. And um, for somebody who is just cherry picking and saying, I'm look I'm looking for a study to. Um, kind of back up this claim. Oh, you know, measles deaths in, you know, uh, versus measles, you know, it's really easy to find the data, um, but you just have to figure out how to, what, what does the data actually say and who paid them to say it? So exactly. that's why it took I, a year. I remember just like a couple months ago, I was reading a study and there were deaths in the study and in one of the groups. And then in the conclusion, they basically said, oh yeah, they're, you know, there's no there's no alarm bells here. There's nothing really to see here. Yeah. Everything looks fine. I'm like, there were deaths. What are you talking about? I think that was um, uh, SIDS that they and they were saying that there um, because the number of SIDS deaths that occurred after this were in line with the other vaccines. That this is normal. This is okay. Yeah, and well, and that kind of brings us into the chart that we have on our on our blog too, which shows that. Basically, every single vaccine that's on the schedule was just tested against another vaccine or an adjuvant. There's not a single vaccine on here that has a proper placebo control group. Except one. Yes, except one, but I, I wouldn't even consider it a proper placebo control group because, number one, it was so small. And we'll get to that later, you know, as to why that's it doesn't really qualify, but... So this is why ICANN, when they sent their response, they basically just said, "Our, our, we wanted this to, we wanted this to be the end of it, but this has just heightened our concerns because they actually read all of the studies, and the HHS claims that there are many clinical trials included a placebo, yet they later say 
that inert placebo controls are not required to understand the safety profile of a new vaccine. And in some cases, it's considered unethical. Yeah. But But then, according to the HHS, the gold standard for testing interventions in people is the randomized placebo-controlled clinical trial. So it's just... Very contradictive. Yeah, a lot of a lot of contradictory statements in their reply, um, which is concerning in and of itself. If you weren't already concerned um, about the safety of vaccines, this their response should concern you, right? So you guys will, I think you guys will really appreciate the chart that I can put in their report. I think it's a really great visual of this. And it shows how licensure for vaccines have not been based on any placebo-controlled trials. And it goes all the way from, like, the very first vaccines to, you know, where we are today. Right. And, yeah. Which is interesting because we always hear, you know, vaccines are so well-studied. You know, they're proven safe. And people seem so confident in that. And then when you look at this chart and you see that the entire foundation of vaccine safety is not based on any placebo controls. It's terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, one one of the things that they they brought up was specifically hepatitis B, um, which is, would be, you would infect via um, needle um, sharing or sexual sexual transmission. Um, But they give this shot to your baby on the first day of life. Um, so again, that, that was never tested against a, a true placebo and it's given to your baby when they're one day old, sometimes a few hours old. And, uh, just by coincidence, America, we have the highest first day infant death rate of all industrialized countries in the world combined. And coincidentally. just coincidentally, though, and uh, we also have the highest rate of infant mortality out of all developed countries, and most of them are, or I guess more deaths are attributed um, to SIDS than any of the other causes. And you know, it's it's just that that should sound some some alarm it's heartbreaking. bells. Heartbreaking, yeah. It's yeah. it's awful. So I'm, I mean, we're, we aren't here to say that you know that vaccines caused all those SIDS, um, uh, but we just implore you to look at the data before um, uh, signing off on that. And and usually most parents, um, you know, go to the um, hospital without a birth plan. Um, they just, you know, let, let the hospital take kind of take control and they do what they do. And um, yeah, I know on my blog, I've got a holistic mom, mama guide part one and part two and part um, one of them has a a birth plan that you can take and say, I want, I want you to do this and not do this um, so that you can, you know, part, part of being prepared for birth or having a birth plan is uh, knowing about this far beyond before you go into labor so that you're not, you know, showing up in, in distress, (laughs) medicated, and they're like forcing you to sign things that you didn't even know were going to happen there. Yep. And how much more, relaxed could you be? I mean, I know obviously giving birth isn't a relaxing experience, but you don't want extra stress on top of that. Right. And, you know, I shamelessly, I've already downloaded your birth plans <laughs> and I've, you know, I'm sure there will be some things that I will add to or edit or whatever, but it's such a great template and a great way to start. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not, I don't have any children, but um, I hope to someday if uh, Gardasil didn't ruin that for me too. Yeah. And you know, I, I meant to introduce, um, 
you and and talk about how you know part of your advocacy at wow I cannot talk um, advocacy came um, from your vaccine injury so maybe when we talk about HPV you can share a little bit about that yeah definitely so just quickly before we move into like a little quick top talk about disease eradication I think you know this wouldn't be a conversation about freedom and medical choice without directing your attention to the Constitution. A lot of religious groups that hold sincere beliefs believe that vaccination is in violation of those beliefs. But as you all have seen, the right to opt out on religious grounds is disappearing in some states and already has in a few. And I think I personally think that we should always be cautious about giving giving our freedom away. Mm-hmm. And this is a, a blatant disregard for our First Amendment right to practice our religion freely. And even though there is a free exercise clause, which allows forced vaccination in the interest of public safety, I don't believe we can, in good conscience, apply that without sufficient evidence demonstrating their safety and effectiveness, which, as you'll see from, you've probably already seen, and you'll continue to see throughout this response, that there's just not enough the answers are not there. Yeah. And so um, before we move on, though, just because this is a podcast and I want to like try and keep it light and entertaining, I'm going to do something. I didn't even tell you I was going to do this and I was going to actually start with it. Um, <laughs> do you say do you say an anagram or a- anagram? Anagram. Anagram. So if you don't know what anagram is, I don't really either. I don't know how to I don't know how to explain it. Um, it starts with an E, so that's why it's a personality I, test. Yeah, that's really all I call it. Right, it's just for fun. Yes, and you get you assigned a number based on a test, and you're like either one through nine, and the, the the scale isn't sliding. It's not like one means you're passive and nine means you're aggressive or anything like that. Um, <laughs> but I am because you're talking about freedom, and so I'm an eight, and I was just on one of these Anagram pages, and they they give you information about yourself and and it helps you in relating to other people too and i just learned that you're a one samantha Mm -hmm. and i'm an eight so eights and ones are pretty pretty similar um and uh in fact i think so my top score was was an eight i think i was like 25 i scored a 25 and i scored like 22 on a one and so on this one page it's like what what do you know each of these numbers want so what does an eight want freedom it says um, a basic desire of what an eight wants is freedom. Uh, they often uh, are seen. Um, <laughs> they are seen that they want powers, but it's not necessarily power. It's that they are independent people, and um, yeah, we we react strongly to people encroaching on our freedom. And um, so, what does what does a one want? So let's see if this is for you. This says what the a, eight is the challenger yeah. too. I don't know if you knew that. The challenger. Yeah. I love that. Yes, and so that kind of goes along with my reflexive contrarianism. You present me with facts. I'm like, prove it. So, um, <laughs> what does a one want? It says balance. Does that make sense? Does that apply to you that a one wants balance? Yeah, I think the one thing about ones that I really, really identify with is that we want, we always see room for improvement in everything. We're always looking to like, how can I fix this? How can I make it better? How can I reform this? We're the reformer. Yes, yes. But you're also like, um, I feel like in, on the one side, there's a lot of like research and um, Mm -hmm. like fact finding um, in the one's personality. So the two of us together, um, 
I think like this sort of a topic because another thing that drives eights would be something like justice. And so here we are with like research finding, um, we don't want our freedom taken away and we're out for justice. Like we, we want to stand up for the people that feel like they're being trampled on. Um, and we want to present you with facts to help, um, you know, fuel your, um, argument, um, whatever it may be. And so, um, yes, that, 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 that's the personality behind the two of us kind of get, getting together and saying, let's, let's tackle this. So now we can do, go back into talking about diseases. (laughs) I hope you enjoyed that intermission. <laughs> take a drink of water. So I think one of the really, I guess the main things that comes up when we talk about public health and vaccination is this belief that we've all forgotten how terrible all the diseases were. Yeah. So I'm just going to read the quote from the New York Times article. It says, thwarting this danger, the danger being vaccine hesitancy, will require a campaign as bold and aggressive as the one being waged by the anti-vaccination contingent. And to launch such a campaign would require overcoming strong inertia, a waning public health apparatus, countervailing politics, and a collective amnesia over the havoc the diseases in question once wrought. Mm. I, I would also like to point out that the majority of people who are so outspoken about vaccinations are the ones who were once pro-vaccine and had it impact their life in such a profound way that they cannot shut up. They don't want it to happen to other people. So um, they they don't have yes. anything to gain from this but besides being publicly shamed by, by your perhaps um, misinformed data and media sound clips. Yeah, absolutely. So, so go ahead. No, I was just, I was just going to go on about you, but you know, you're on a collective amnesia trail. I am. I am that for some reason that I mean, hashtag triggered, but (laughs) collective amnesia comment really, I mean, it, it spoke to me because I think that there's actually been a collective amnesia over the importance of sanitation Mm -hmm. and of the cost of vaccination and maybe not even a collective amnesia because we've never really been given the full complete unbiased history of infectious disease and the rates of infectious disease prior to vaccination and how those diseases actually were eradicated. Um, And the cost of vaccination hasn't really been um, addressed from a historical perspective. I feel like there's a lot of talk about it maybe now, currently, because there are a lot of people speaking out about their vaccine injuries, but Mm. most people may not even know that this has been going on. The vaccine injury um, conversation has been going on since the 1800s and maybe even before that because vaccination is actually older than that. Right. And on um, the blog post under, um, you know, disease eradication, we've got a lot of links to what um, what the disease rates and deaths were, you know, usually in that time frame, 1800, um, you know, early 1900s, where our, you know, obviously you, you didn't have clean water, sanitation, indoor plumbing. Um, you were, the streets were lined with filth and feces. And, you know, in some cases, like two to three feet deep that you're just like walking through all the time. You, you didn't just go home and wash it off. Like the disease was spreading yeah. so fast and they didn't have, um, you know, the proper measures of, of quarantine in place. And um, yeah, it was it was a very filthy um, 
yep. living uh, conditions that they that they that they were in, and um, you can see what we have included many many charts, um, a couple of charts and links to some charts, including the CDC statistics um, as well that show just the decline of all of these diseases without vaccination, just on on its own, just from sanitation and hygiene, including things that we never had vaccines for like tuberculosis and syphilis and um uh what else typhoid fever um Mm -hmm. like those things were all declining just on their own around the same time like right around like you know um the 60 like early 60s um or even even before that you can see it on a slow decline and then they get basically down to zero um right you know which just further illustrates the idea that we are really conditioned to fear the diseases that we have vaccines for. And, you know, to that point, though, I also think, you know, if, you know, you look at measles before the vaccine, before sanitation, you know, and the death rates were, you know, even even still, I think it was like 0.02 or maybe even smaller than that, that the death rates were in a condition without um the medical development in terms of like sterilized, sterilized equipment, um, without hygiene and, and being able to like wash your body and your hands at home. And so if, you know, the measles, um, breaks out, like we see it, it, they're usually don't get beyond these small clusters because we, we are, we are a developed country. Now we have the measures to maintain, um, such, you know, viruses, Right. Right. And that actually, um, I mean, I, I won't get into this. The small pocket conversation is really long. And if you guys follow me on Instagram, you've seen, <laughs> I devoted like three days of my life to talking about smallpox and I never want to talk about it again, but I'm going to talk about it right now. <laughs> last time. Last time. This is the last time. thought yesterday was the last time, but now we're re-recording this. Psych. So I would encourage you guys to read the the blog post if you're interested in hearing about the history of smallpox. We do talk a little bit about the town of Leicester, which was basically the inception of the first um, well-known anti-vaccine movement. Andy Wakefield wasn't there. Was Jenny McCarthy there? I don't know. I didn't see her in any pictures, so... (laughs) You guys have to know we're joking because neither one of us have ever used a celebrity, um, you know, to to support our claims. I always tell people I can I can discuss the topic of vaccination and make my case without even touching on the topic of Andy Wakefield or autism. Yeah, I usually I don't usually ever talk about it, and I didn't even want to. I don't either it because it's so inflammatory. It is, but we will talk. We do talk about it simply because the um, New York Times decided that they wanted to go there. So we said, yeah. I guess we need to go there. <laughs> So definitely check out the post if you're interested in hearing about the history of smallpox, the Lester method. Basically, um, all the parents in Lester saw what was happening to their children and they had had enough. And so they resorted to quarantine and sanitation, which is a totally novel idea. Mm-hmm. Because it and was it mandated. They were they were getting <laughs> yeah, arrested it was mandatory. if they didn't. Yeah, they were putting men, uh, they were putting fathers in prison for not vaccinating. They were fining people. And eventually the courts just could not handle the um, influx of cases. And so they overturned the laws. And this was after they had, they had like 
vaccination rate before. And by vaccine, she doesn't mean needles. Outbreaks. She doesn't mean injecting with needles. Yeah, like like they were. Yeah, it was a disgusting um, application of um, of the disease. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So yeah, you can go check all that out. And uh, of course, when you're going to have the conversation, you're going to hear the word herd immunity brought out. um, And I'll probably quote a couple of things from. the New York Times, um, because they love to reference the 2014 California measles outbreak that was eliminated, um, that eliminated medical exemptions. Uh, I'm sorry, non-medical exemptions. So they, they took away our personal um, and religious exemptions in order to send our kids to school um, or daycare. And that they, they basically say everybody else should follow this lead and we need to tighten restrictions. Um, and they also claim, this is in a separate article, but it is the New York Times, that they say that the measles is the, one of the most contagious and most lethal of all human diseases, which, of course, they don't cite any reference for that. Um, it might be global. Again, you know, a lot of these claims when they come from the World Health Organization are global statistics that include underdeveloped or, you know, third world countries. And um, so the and they to go on with the quote, the percentage of children in a community who have received the measles vaccine falls below 90 to 95 percent. If that happens, we can start to see major outbreaks as in the 50s. So let's talk about herd immunity real quick, because that 95 percent number is something that they love to throw around as actual science, which it is not. It is a mathematical theory that's never been tested. And there's actually some information. If you go look at China as an example, we've linked to that um, their conclusion uh, or included in their study. I'll quote the reported coverage of the measles rubella MR or measles mumps rubella MMR vaccine is greater than 99% in certain provinces. However, the incidence of measles, mumps, and rubella remain high. Amazing how that works. Yeah. <laughs> and so... Um, Dr. Russell Blaylock, he's a retired neurosurgeon. He explains this in great detail. We have a whole quote about it in the article. I don't think we really need to go too deeply into that no but But. he basically just explains why the herd immunity theory um herd immunity is naturally acquired and you can't replace that with artificial immunity and but i do want to quote something um because we know that there's waning immunity um vaccines which why they'll tell you i'll go get your boosters and they'll only last like two to ten years and you know before we even discovered this at the time that they're like oh these vaccines aren't lifetime immunity um at that point at least half the population the baby boomers had no vaccine induced immunity um for any of the diseases which they had been vaccinated for early in life so it was about like 50 percent of uh or more of the population was unprotected for decades yet we didn't see any any major effect we didn't have all these pandemics happening um because i guess we didn't know what we didn't know we didn't know that 50% of our population yeah. was unprotected. Therefore, we can't generate a uh, media scare for you. Now we know. Right. Right. Love it. I don't love it. I feel really cheated <laughs> for not having been allowed to get measles. Yeah. I mean, and and I know that you'll link or you link to um, the public perception, which the measles is referred to. 
you know, on the Brady Bunch, on the Flintstones, a lot of TV shows, it's sort of like, oh, mm-hmm. you know, it's essentially a virus um, that is accompanied with, with the rash. It's, um, you know, I think they saw it as kind of like a, getting a cold. And um, we do talk a lot about measles because, and I think it's important to know the facts about measles, especially with um, the outbreaks that, you know, is going to fuel legislation as we saw, um, you know, conveniently, Washington State has in- introduced their um uh, they're mandating, they, they want to mandate the MMR vaccine for school and daycare. They want to take away uh, religious and uh, personal exemptions in the state of Washington simply based on this outbreak. And so we talk about measles in the post and, you know, the complications uh, being grossly over, overstated. I think they say, um, you know, encephalitis, you know, if you get measles, but it's actually like, according to the CDC, it's 0.1 percent um and so yeah i i would encourage you to look at that um conversely the adverse uh, the vaccine adverse reporting uh system which is VAERS, which was put into place again um uh, around the time of that 1986 act is grossly underreported so if there is a, an adverse, if you have an adverse reaction, you or your child have an adverse reaction to a vaccine, you need to be calling VAERS and telling them, even if it is a high fever, even if it is, um, you know, febrile <laughs> seizures, which a lot of these doctors have, um, are crying for three to four days, which, you know, a lot of nurses will tell you, like, that's encephalitis. And um, but because they say, well, that's normal. Most kids... You know, this is a, mm-hmm. a common or fairly common side effect. Nobody feels like they're, you know, uh, need to call theirs. So a, a lot of the studies show that, you know, some less than 1% of the actual side effects are ever reported to VAERS. So you can't use those statistics and say, well, encephalitis, you know, in, in natural measles or wild measles, um, you know, is at is at 0.1%. And, and, you know, encephalitis in the vaccine is only 0.00, whatever it is, I don't even know. Um, because that data only represents 1% of what actually happened anyway. So if you just want to multi- multiply everything by 100, that's probably more accurate. Right. So there's that. I mean, even if you only multiplied it by 10, it's still very concerning. Yeah. But 100? Oh, yep. And again, yeah. yeah, we've got links to all of this. I think it's, these are these are not we're not lo- linking to mommy blogs here on their opinions. This is we're linking to like like the HSS lawsuit. They're using their data. They're looking at these the CDC information, the the information that's available on HSS and CDC and HWO. This is the information we're linking for you. It's on their own pages. I highly recommend that anyone who's interested in learning more reads the response from ICANN to HHS. It's 88 pages total. So it's super long. I haven't made it through yeah, it. Yeah, what page are you on? Made it through yet. <laughs> Not I'm very on page, far. like six or seven. Yeah. Uh, because I really, I mean, I really want to take it all in. So I would just encourage people to look at that because that is a direct response to everything that the HHS claims supports the idea that vaccines are safe and effective. Right. And um, I, I know you guys want information about measles because that's what's happening. And I, I, I know you and I both have gotten uh, yeah. numerous messages about uh, concern for mandates, concern for your child to catch measles. Um, 
I, there is document. If you just even want to Google, you can look on our page or you can just Google like vitamin C, vitamin, vitamin A for, um, for measles. And even the CDC, NIH, they, um, recommend high dose, um, like a two, two day high dose of, um, vitamin A if you feel like you were exposed or you are on first day of exposure or whatever that you, that, that, um, significantly reduces the complications of, of measles because a lot of these complications are arising out of malnourished or nutrient deficient, um, families. And so it's good to know that information and, um, and, and keep your kids home when they're sick. So if they get the sniffles, if they have a fever, don't take them to school. I mean, that's in general for everything. A lot of people, you know, we, we, our kids all get colds, um, some more than others. And, um, and I understand that sucks. You have to stay home from work. You have to rearrange your day. Um, but this is, this is where it starts. You, um, Mm -hmm. you take your kid to school. They are more contagious in the beginning stages before they start to show symptoms. You don't even, you know, if you wait until a rash shows up, you, your, your child has been contagious around, you know, um, you know, their classmates, uh, you know, whether they're taking them to daycare or church or whatever you're, um, the, the bottom line in general is to stay home when you're sick, everybody, even workers, you know, you, you're an adult, you can stay home. That's what six days are for. So I guess I, people are going to say, you know, that sometimes they don't have that option. Um, but it is, if you do have the ability to stay home, you have, uh, you know, you're in a employment situation where you have sick days to use, um, that, that is the, if you look at the disease eradication, quarantine, um, is, is one of the biggest things. So not going out in public when you're sick is, um, is how you how you yep. keep it keep keep it um, closed closed off. Now, really quick before we move on from measles, I do hope that everyone will take a look at um, the post where we talk about the artificial the difference between artificial immunization and like natural immunity, and how that creates a very cyclical problem because it used to be that. You know, when you were young, you would get measles and then the immune mother would be able to pass that immunity on to their baby during that risk, that more risky time. Like like up to like six to nine months when they were, when it started to wane. So they wouldn't catch And now we don't get that anymore. Yeah. So, and it raises the question, well, how do we solve that problem? And you can see how, you know, the, the artificial immunization is creating new problems. Yeah. And its effectiveness in the first place is questionable. So, right, and I don't think, even think we talked about non-responders yet either, because um, yeah. you know in, when we talked about herd immunity and they want to get to ninety-five percent, and we know um, it can be like up to ten percent of people who do receive the the vaccine don't mount um, the proper antibodies, so the vaccine had no effect on them in terms of um, them resp- their body, their immune system responding to it in the way that 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 they had designed it to or in hopes that, that, that it would. And so if you looked at even at the, on the high end of, of 90 of, um, you know, 10%, that it's impossible. Even if a hundred percent of people went and got vaccinated, you would never reach 95%, which is why they're starting to feel like, you know, they need to eliminate medical exemptions too, which accounts for 1% of the population. And so they want to put those people with medical exemptions with a, that have a medical reason to not vaccinate. Um, they want to put them at risk um, simply because they know that 
there's some people that just don't respond to it in general. So they're trying to do everything that they can to get to this 95% unproven theory again. So, um, yeah, concerning, concerning stuff regarding our freedoms and exemptions. Definitely. Shall we jump into pertussis for a second? Yeah, and I, I want to talk about pertussis um, simply because you know it does have a, you know the same kind of history that um, that it the the deaths declined on on its own without intervention like medical intervention um, by ninety nine percent before the vaccine was introduced, and you know they they developed this vaccine that caused so much damage that they replaced with um, the one the one that's on the market now, which people don't understand um, is it doesn't prevent you from catching pertussis or passing it on. What in fact it does um, is give you a false sense of security that, that because you got the vaccine, you cannot catch pertussis. Therefore, um, you know, you get to go see this new baby because everybody, you know, they the parents said, everybody will get a pertussis shot and you get your pertussis shot and, Maybe you start to feel a little bit sick, but not sick enough to stay home from from work. Not sick enough to say, "Oh, I, I, I don't. I'm not coughing like like pertussis, so I'm going to go see this baby." But in reality, what this vaccine does is it just suppresses some of the symptoms. It makes the cough not as severe, so that but you but you as a person still catch it and it's contagious. You still carry around, and we link to the studies, you carry around um, high colonies of bacteria in your throat. And so no matter how small your little, <coughs> you're still, it's still spreading. And um, so, yeah, I would just challenge new moms and, you know, that, that demand to go get your Tdap booster um, because that's a very um, uh, misleading vaccine. And in fact, if I ever, if I had a new baby, my rule would be anybody who has gotten the pertussis vaccine, you're not allowed to my house. It, it, my mind would be completely reversed. So. Yep. Same. What about the flu? I feel like most people, I, I feel like this is documented that most uh, adults are we- weary of the flu vaccine in yeah, general. Yeah, I would say it's probably the one vaccine that people are a little skeptical about as a general, like general public. Um, and I, I think the flu vaccine is a perfect time to sort of talk about the media. Oh, I don't know. What's the word I'm looking for? Um, Propaganda. Yeah. Like global, the global, um, what were they, what was it? The golden globes that, um, did their little, yeah. their little commercial for giving everybody their flu skit. Yeah. They're everybody's getting the flu shot. Yeah. I mean, ew, who wants to have a medical procedure? I mean, even if it was fake, who? Yeah, it was, it was just weird. It seemed it very was, out of place. Yeah. It was just bizarre. Yeah. So many people messaged me. They're like, it's just weird. Yeah. It, it was, was just, just bizarre. So yeah. I think it was a huge failure on whatever. I don't know what they were trying to do, but if they were trying to make everyone feel weird and awkward, then success. success. Yeah. <laughs> so. Um. I want to talk about that presentation. I think you shared about this um, on your account a couple weeks ago, maybe. It was a presentation called Increasing Awareness and Uptake of Influenza Immunization. And that was, it was in 2004, one of the CDC employees was sharing this presentation and it was basically explaining how to create demand for the flu vaccine. Yes, yeah, so this is the CDC's recipe for creating um, uh more urgent sense of urgency for yeah. for the vaccine. I like how they call it a recipe. Yeah. Like, oh, just a a dash of exaggeration here. <laughs> so tell us the a ingredients. A sprinkle of health experts there. 
So they are calling for medical experts to publicly state concern via the media, predict dire outcomes, urge vaccination, frame the flu va- the flu season as severe or quote more severe than last or past years or quote deadly. The whole point of it is to foster demand uh, that requires creating con- and which requires creating concern, anxiety, and worry. They're basically telling you in order for us to see uptake in the flu vaccine, we have to scare you. We have to create this anxiety within the population. Yeah, we have to make people feel this sense that so many people are getting ill and. Yeah it's really bad and that you're vulnerable. Well, and they even say that, um, they say, for example, a perception or sense that many people are falling ill, a perception or sense that many people are experiencing bad illness, a perception or sense of vulnerability to contracting and experiencing bad illness. This is the recipe is success means to give the perception of these things not to present facts about these things. It's to create a perception. Right. It's almost like they're just straight out saying we're creating propaganda mm-hmm. based on non-facts. <laughs> Sounds legit so, I don't, to me. Yeah, seems legit. So uh, Dr. Peter Doshi posed a question shortly after that. Are U.S. flu death figures more PR than science? And we go more in depth on that on the post. What actually and, contributed to those deaths? And um, right, spoiler and alert. And they give an example. <laughs> just the flu. Right, and they give the example that in um, the CDC's National Center for Health Statistics says that influenza and pneumonia took sixty-two thousand and thirty-four lives in two thousand one. And 61,777 of those were attributed to pneumonia and 257 to flu. And in only 18 cases was flu virus positively identified. Yeah. 62,000 from- <laughs> Which one should we use? <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know if we're creating a perception or sense that many people are experiencing bad illness, quote. Yeah. And, you know, this, this... Maybe the 18 wouldn't be good enough. This seems to be a trend. Um, you know, if if they have the ability um, or excuse to combine things to create this perception, they will. And you'll talk th- about that again in um, your HPV thing. Yeah. Yep. And I've looked at the CDC's flu view. You can go track, like, flu deaths. You could track pediatric flu deaths. And I've looked at the pediatric flu deaths before and... You can download the data that tells you whether or not there were like comorbidities and you can just imagine where that's going. Yeah. So there was, there's a lot underneath the flu. I'm not going to read any more quotes. I feel like you guys can go through this yourself and, and come to your own conclusions here. But yeah, just about the one the thing I do want to add. Yeah. One thing I want to add is that some studies are showing influenza vaccine Effectiveness is not only limited, but it also increases your risks for other illness. For example, having a fourfold risk increase or fourfold increase for upper respiratory infection, which is not something you want to deal with. Yeah. So, and again, these time proven methods of disease management are virtually ignored. You know, anytime you hear a news segment or, you know, people talking about the flu, it's always get your flu vaccine. 
get your flu vaccine. Well, how about stay home if you're sick, wash your hands, you know, eat well, get, make sure you get vitamin D, you know, those things aren't normally talked about and certainly not talked about as often as just going to get your flu vaccine. But Mm -hmm. I guess you don't get a free $10 CVS gift card for eating well. You have to get your flu vaccine for that. Or so. turkey if it's Thanksgiving. Yeah. <laughs> a tasty one, I'm sure. Um, I'm sure. Yeah. Lots of GMO feed involved. <laughs> uh, they probably injected those Yum. with saline, though. I mean, yeah, is that where all probably. the saline is going? <laughs> oh, should we go on an HPV? Yeah. It's just, yeah, I mean, we can, you can obviously go and look at all the data, but I think, so we have to go for it. Yeah, so we talked a little bit about the HPV placebo control group. And again, I know I keep saying this, but I really encourage you to go look at the data that we put together because it's pretty startling to see how they presented the data. In the Gardasil package insert, they have like two columns. One is for the vaccine group and then one is for the placebo group. But in reality, the placebo group includes two different groups. And one of those groups received the AAHS, which is the Gardasil aluminum-containing adjuvant. And then one group received a true saline placebo. And long story short, the group with the aluminum had 43 serious adverse events. And the placebo group had zero. None. Not a single serious adverse event within one to 15 days after vaccination. What a coincidence. However, when they come, I know, so weird. <laughs> so weird how that happens. But then they put the groups together in the insert. And so it looks like the placebo had 43 serious adverse events. But what they don't show you readily in that is that the placebo group actually has two groups. Yeah. One with a true so, placebo, one with an adjuvant. Yes, and it's much easier to understand if you guys go look on the post because we share visual aids. some tables. Yeah, visual aids. If you're a visual learner, that would be very helpful. So not only that, but the HPV vaccine is responsible for more adverse reactions than other recommended vaccines. So in comparison to all other vaccines given to females from 6 to 29, HPV vaccines were associated with more than 60% of all life-threatening adverse reactions, including death. And 82% of all reported permanent disability in females under 30, which are, that's pretty startling. Yeah. But, you know, and this is the data, so I can talk about anecdotal too. When I talk to women around my age, maybe a little younger, maybe a little bit older as well, just basically in my generation, when I talk to women who have experienced adverse reactions from vaccines, it's almost always the HPV vaccine. Yeah. Almost always. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think, I mean, because and, at that age, they're experienced this and they're able to communicate more effectively than they are mm-hmm. when they are a three-month-old, a six-month-old, and a nine-month-old, an 18-month-old, etc. I mean, they're... Mm-hmm. Uh, they have a little bit more use of their words and knowing what's normal and not and advocating for themselves to a certain extent to their parents and saying, I, I, I need help. Absolutely. And that's one of the things that made me want to speak up and just share what I was learning with other people because whenever I experienced vaccine injury, I remember thinking to myself, well, if this is how it's affecting me, 
how is this affecting little babies and children who really can't describe and who don't have that cognitive ability yet to, you know, make a contrast between I felt this and now I felt that, you know, and much less we're talking infants who literally can't even speak yet. They're all they have is the ability to cry. And that just broke my heart. And that's what made me decide that I needed to say something because if it affected me, then I just can't imagine what it's been like for those who can't speak yet. Yeah. Agreed. And I was a 21 year old, you know, 115 pound woman. Yeah. You know, we're talking about infants that are, you know, newborn, and, six, seven pounds, and or, they didn't or less give you um, any any information up front before they gave you the vaccine in terms oh, of no. um, adverse no. effects or risks. No, nothing. And unfortunately, the sad thing is that I actually asked for the Gardasil shot because I had seen the commercials, which, I mean, if you want to talk about, like, really, the word propaganda, that campaign for the HPV vaccine was just so, just, it's just sad. I mean, you're looking at images of girls, little girls in that, you know, age range, probably like 10 to 12 saying, you know, mom, did you know, did you know that there was a vaccine that could have prevented cancer? I mean, like tugging at the heartstrings of a parent. Did you not love me enough? Yeah. Yeah. Like, did you want me to get cancer, mom? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's essentially what they're saying. And of course, no parent wants that for their child. And so you're you're using an emotional argument, which is ironic because that's what we're always accused of doing. We're always accused of making emotional arguments without facts. But then you have this commercial that's basically all pulling on your heartstrings, yeah. all emotion and no facts. And then they don't even talk about the fact that, you know, Gardasil was based on studies from th- that were designed, sponsored and conducted by the v- vaccine manufacturers that it can actually exacerbate cancer, cervical cancer disease in women with pre-existing infections of certain HPV types. And, you know, almost 90% of cervical cancer deaths are occurring in developing countries, which have an insufficient medical infrastructure to implement the pap screening programs that we have here. Yeah. And- so here in the developed countries, cervical cancer mortality rates are extremely, extremely low. Well, and they state in the in the New York Times article that uh, the rates for HP vaccination are dismal, and their goal, meaning like you know the World Health Organization, the CDC, the medical community, that that this the HPV vaccine needs to be more widely used. The uptick needs to go. So you should expect to see even more and more of this information to get this um, HPV vaccine administered to um, to your children. If you have children um, over the age of 10, I would advise you already having those conversations with them because some schools have been known to implement the um, either implied consent or that your um, child I believe the age is 12 where this is happening, that they do not need to inform the parent that they can actually give the HPV vaccine um, um, to your child without um, without asking permission. Um, and I just saw something else that in some some state that was saying that they were restricting the age age of 12 and above that the parents didn't have access to um, 
medical records in general. Uh, so th- this mm-hmm. is very tricky in terms of if you have concerns about the HPV vaccine, um, your child is going to be the only one advocating for themselves at the school should that happen. Um, again, I'm not trying to instill fear, but I would I would maybe do some research uh, on you know. What, where this may be happening and um, what what you can advise your child to, you know, agree to or not agree to or the words that they can use, um, you know, just just as a, you know, thinking, thinking ahead. Yeah, absolutely. Always better to be prepared. Yep. So you can also see in the in the post the company that did the um, the evaluation of the Infrarix vaccination, the six in one also evaluated Gardasil nine. Gardasil nine was supposed to contain nine antigens for nine different subtypes of the HPV virus. And two of those were not present in the vaccine at all. They also found hundreds of signals of chemical contaminants, um, 78% of which were unknown. So yeah. Interesting. Yep. Definitely good information to at least know to make, um, you know, have, have some facts from the other side. And, uh, you know, I've talked about polio so much. Um, we have, you, you've spent so much time talking about smallpox. I feel like I've spent so much time talking about polio, but (laughs) even when I was writing about measles four or five years ago, when the Disneyland outbreak happened, I feel like, like you can't properly understand what's happening with measles. If all of your arguments come back to polio, like, because we we need to have a better understanding or at least challenge what the, what the storyline is. And the, the fact of the matter is that CDC acknowledges that 95% of polio cases are asymptomatic. So, you aren't experiencing symptoms less than 1% experience paralysis and you know the there was a demand for vaccination following um you know some large epidemic it was uh, extremely abnormal for these like 20 over 20,000 people died in 1916 and what is very convenient slash coincidental is that there was a laboratory 3 miles away from the epicenter of the epidemic that there were scientists from Rockefeller labs that were infecting monkeys with their mutant polio strain in attempts to increase its virulence. And so that to me doesn't sound like a coincidence. It sounds like, you know, in in 1916, maybe the scientists had a little bit of of understanding of, of the disease that they were dealing with, but they also were hiring like monkey handlers who were probably not experienced in that. So we're probably coming and going and um, there's just a, a large uh, risk opening up there for, for that disease to have um, originated from, from, I'm not saying that it did. It just seems very coincidental and you can look at that report. Um, and, you know, again, Rockefeller, uh, they licensed their arsenic to treat syphilis, which they then found out was creating these lesions on the spine um, that were, um, I think, categorized as uh, acute centromyelitis or acute poliomyelitis. And um, so they d- developed this vaccine. I know a lot of you know about the sock vaccine. It The virus, it could, because we know the flip side, we know the end story, which was that there was this live vaccine that was, was hurting people. And so what had happened was they were using a method that wasn't com- completely inactivating the virus. I believe it was formaldehyde. And so when Salk and his teams and his, um, the, um, the sponsor of the, of the study and, and the, it was what it was at the national, uh, childhood polio something. I can't remember the name of it. Um, 
they were presenting this data and uh, some of the doctors were challenging they were saying, something's missing here. You seem to be suppressing data from certain lots. And the people who challenged that were dismissed from the committee and replaced with yes men. And so they were able to get this passed um, because they created a board of advisors that agreed with their presentation and didn't call them out on some um, suppressing data. And then they, you know, gave the vaccine to several, um, you know, manufacturers. We don't even know how many at this point. We do know that uh, Cutter Labs got it because what followed was the Cutter incident when they infected over 200,000 people with the live virus. And there were 70,000 paralysis deaths, or not deaths, I'm sorry, 70,000 paralysis cases and at least 10 deaths. And then still still more to be known um, because uh, there, there was a lot of stuff that was closed. We learned later a few other labs had caused some of the, some of the same damage um, after somebody filed a Freedom, Freedom of Information Act. And then, you know, Salk himself admitted that, you know, the the live virus was responsible, um, the principal, if not sole cause, his words, of all reported polio cases since 1961. And then at the same time that the vaccine was introduced, they changed the diagnosis um, for polio. It had to be, you know, a certain amount of days longer. There had to be multiple confirmations. And so what happened was you saw the increase into various other illnesses, uh, Coxsackie, arsenic, um, as we saw before, arsenic toxicity, DDT toxicity, lead poisoning, hand, foot, mouth, aseptic meningitis, acute flaccid paralysis, um, you know, etc. So um, it appeared on paper that polio had declined, um, but it was it was just a reorganization of how it was how it was being diagnosed. And this is from some hearings before the committee, um, the House of Representatives back in back in the 60s. And then, because um, some people are concerned, they're like, oh, polio is coming back um, because there are these outbreaks of polio-like um, illnesses, acute flaccid myelitis, which is a subtype of transverse myelitis. And so if you're listening to the list above, transverse myelitis would have been called polio before the diagnosis um, procedures were revised. And so acute flaccid myelitis is listed as a side effect in vaccines such as Hep B, MMR, Tdap, HPV, influenza, H1N1. And then if you look at all these these international, you know, oh these these poor, you know, developing nations that are, you know, experiencing polio, um you go look at the data on on the HWO and there's like their, their international concerns for polio. We've linked to it. They're um I think in all but one I showed, um they were vaccine derived polio viruses. So that's all I'm going to say about polio. Just so much to unpack about smallpox and polio. Just those two diseases alone. I mean, you could spend your whole life just learning about those two yeah. historically. So speaking of sound bites and statements that people make to support their pro-mandate position, things like vaccines eradicated smallpox and polio. Let's talk about some other black and white statements. Millions of lives. Yeah. So in this New York Times article, they have all the steps on how to inoculate against anti-vaxxers. It's their recipe. Yeah, I guess that's us. I guess we're the anti-vaxxers. I hate that term so much. (laughs) Because it implies anti-science. So Yes. Yes. It's because of the 
the implications. Yeah. It it just implies so much beyond just saying that you you don't want vaccines. It also implies that you're some hippy dippy I don't know. Whatever. Yeah. We don't believe we in got, modern we, medicine at all. Yeah. Yeah. And just so you guys know, I don't think essential oils saved the world. What? Like, Jamie and I share <laughs> the same, uh, very, very similar thoughts on. So if you, you sell know, them, please don't send us hate mail. I mean, I, I can't, yeah. I can't deal. I no, can't. I use, I use them. They're just not like my go-to thing for everything under the sun. No, I use peppermint for headaches you know. though. That's. Yeah. Ding. I just love to diffuse them because they smell good, you know? <laughs> so let's talk about some black and white statements. They are advocating for people to get out of the gray zone in this article. And they talk about how scientists especially are uncomfortable with black and white statements, as they should be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but in the case of vaccines, there are some hard truths that deserve to be trumpeted. <laughs> vaccines are not... Toxic, and they do not cause autism. Full stop. Full so. stop. End of conversation. Right, well, I guess we'll see you guys later then. That's <laughs> it. Oh, my goodness. Good thing I'm an eight. Because I'm like, oh, you told me to stop? Mm, that means go. <laughs> Challenge accepted. <laughs> so this was what kind of made us drop everything and address this. Because vaccination has never been certainty. I don't think it ever could be certainty. There's no... There's no 100% safe and effective. It's just not, that's not the reality. And so giving people this permission to make unsubstantiated claims regarding this medical procedure that is designed to affect your immune system long-term is incredibly irresponsible. Science is always evolving. And there are so many unexplored avenues and connections within the complex issue that is vaccination and immunity it's just, it makes no sense for us to abandon abandon science in favor of this collectivist thought system, this false sense of security. And it's prohibiting people from true informed consent and allowing them to really weigh those risks and benefits. Mm-hmm. And you're, instead, you're giving them this illusion of total safety and, and efficacy, and it's dishonest. Right. And I should state, like, informed consent goes beyond what's happening at your doctor. Your doctor doesn't have uh, the um, full burden of responsibility to give you everything you need. You're the one who's responsible for taking, going and getting those um, vaccine inserts and looking at them. Right. Um, you're the one who's responsible for uh, for your child, and you are the subject matter expert on your child. And so informed consent should start long before you show up to your well visit and and they're like oh are you ready for vaccines and you're like wait a minute what um oh i guess so like um this needs to be looked at far far before that right because at the end of the day the doctor isn't coming home with you to take care of your child for the rest of their life so whatever happens doesn't happen whatever the outcome is you're the one who will have to live with that and yes, there are some things that are going to be out of our control, but I, in the case of our health and our children's health, I don't think we want to leave any stone unturned. And I think it's also worth mentioning, too, that there are a lot of doctors out there, I'm sure, who do keep up on the latest research, but that's not a requirement for them to read the latest article about vaccines and food sensitivities or whatever the newest thing is. 
So there have been studies that have been done that show clinical practice is about 17 years behind the newest research. Mm-hmm. So I think that's something to keep in right. mind. So um, let's maybe address the full stop issue and let's just go um, on blow through this stop sign that is autism. And um, yes, uh, but again, we just want to preface this by saying that, you know, we don't, we, I wouldn't say Samantha does. I definitely don't think that vaccines are responsible for every case of autism. I would never say that. Um, we, we've nope. talked to families from both, from both sides and there are so many factors. Autism is widely, yeah. um, uh, miss, um, represented, understudied. Um, there's, there's so many different factors, uh, to consider, um, yeah. environmental, genetic, um, just in trigger, you know, what causes triggers in general, um, in, yep. or, you know, anyway, so multifactorial, so many different things to look at and arguably spending a lot of attention and research in the area of genetics, when there are so many other things that appear to be more promising leads as to what's really going on. So that's kind of, that's a whole other topic, but we wanted to just briefly touch on the segment that aired just recently that I don't think any of the mainstream media touched except for Cheryl Atkinson and the full measure staff. Basically they showcased Dr. Andrew Zimmerman, who was a renowned, who is a renowned pro vaccine pro-vaccine, pediatric neurologist specializing in autism. And he and other experts on that segment agreed that vaccines can and do cause autism in some children. That's why I've always, I always hated the argument that vaccines do cause autism or vaccines don't cause autism because that implies that in all cases they do or in all cases they don't. And again, it's very polarizing and it's a black and white statement. So he is coming out to say, they can cause autism in exceptional cases, but he says that the government hid the information and misrepresented his opinion. Right, because he, he was used as an expert um, witness right. for um, a case. Yes, sorry, I kind of skipped over that. He was used as an expert in the federal vaccine court, defending vaccines on behalf of the government. And so he tried to explain his opinion to the DOJ attorneys And he says, I explained in a subset of children, vaccine-induced fever and immune stimulation did cause regressive brain disease with features of autism spectrum disorder. And we just included a brief portion of that in the article that we wrote, but there's links to the full stories. And I would definitely encourage people to dig deeper into that, especially if autism is an area of interest for you. But I think you should definitely move on to the next topic because I know that you're not the next topic, but the next subject in this topic, um, because you did such a good job yesterday when you were talking about, um, um, Mr. Uh, or what, how did you say it? The, the Andy in the room? Yeah. The Andy in the room, the elephant in the room, Dr. Andrew Wakefield. (laughs) I mean, it would just be incomplete if we didn't talk about him, you know? So there are some, there are definitely a lot of facts that have been left out of the media. So we would, we wanted to shed some light on those for the discerning reader, those who are still open to seeing other information besides what they are presented with on the media channels that are funded by the pharmaceutical companies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> In the infamous study that is that is now retracted, 
the authors wrote the fraudulent study I, by the way yeah. the, f- the yeah the fraudulent study i need a megaphone for this next <laughs> line quote we did not prove an association between measles mumps and rubella vaccine and the syndrome described mm. but i guess the media the media just never read the study i guess because that is not the representation we were given sounds pretty black and white to me yeah it does you're looking for black and white statements there it is <laughs> and so we actually do link to it so if there ever happens to be somebody um you know of the journalistic fashion that actually wants to read it and can maybe you know write something about that that'd be cool yeah that'd be great we are seriously lacking journalism with integrity and neutral viewpoints right now yeah so the GMC convicted two of the authors of that code of that the co-authors of that study Dr. Andrew Wakefield and Dr. John Walker Smith and what you may not have heard was that he Dr. John Walker Smith was actually his license to practice was restored yeah so, and almost all the charges that were filed against him were the same as what was filed against right. Dr. So, Andrew. Yeah, Wakefield. they overturned that. And then the, the retraction wasn't a retraction of the study, but it was a retraction of the interpretation. So there, there's so much misunderstood about Wakefield and the study in general. So if you want to know your stuff, you should read up on it, but definitely before you write about it. Yep. So... We're, we're just calling for exhaustive research to address the concerns of vaccine-induced autism that thousands of parents are claiming to have witnessed in their children because parents are reliable in assessing their children's health. Like Janie has already said, you are the expert on your child. And because the data just isn't sufficient to dismiss the claims. Yep. You don't let anybody call you a crazy mom. Amen. Let's talk about the enemy. I think that's us. We're the enemy. I feel so um, non-evil enough to be an enemy, but all right. I know. Um, <laughs> but apparently we have... No, they make us sound so organized in the article. They're like, they're media savvy, tech savvy people. And I'm like, really? Because we had to re-record this podcast and this is like take 15. And we, we are not so, being sponsored by anybody. I'd like you to know no. that we probably collectively together have spent over 40 hours on this post and recording and editing and all of that. And so um, if you are looking for any sort of uh, profit motive from our point, you're not going to find any. Oh my gosh, no. I, I've i lost so much sleep. Yeah, it's, it's going to be nap time after this is over. Yes. So let's talk, can I, can I read the quote? Yeah. The quote's just so good. From New York Times, Know the enemy. On the internet, anti-vaccine propaganda has outpaced pro-vaccine public health information. Defense against this onslaught has been meager. <laughs> Get a tissue. The CDC, the nation's leading public health agency, has a website with accurate information but no loud public voice. The United States Surgeon General's office has been mum. So has the White House, and not just under the current administration. That leaves just a handful of academics who get bombarded with vitriol, including outright threats every time they try to counter pseudoscience with fact. Mm. Yes. Vitriol and threats every time, every time they try to counter pseudoscience with fact. Right. 
Yeah, that um, I, I feel so bad for them. I've just I've just witnessed, witnessed so many people on the opposite side simply trying to share a study without th- shoving it down people's throats, being attacked with vitriol from their own family members, from their own yeah, friends, yeah. being called baby murderers, and people wishing death upon their children. It's just terrible. Yeah. And so, so it's I to mean, our listeners, not- don't do that to anybody. Yeah. Don't talk. We're not encouraging that kind of behavior from either side. But painting us as this enemy is not only is this a broad brush to be painting this group of vaccine hesitant people who they claim, the New York Times claims, were on a spectrum anyway, but they're painting us on the entire spectrum as the enemy. It's destroying possibilities of us finding common ground and it's setting us up for a battle instead of a discussion where we could, you know, make, I think we can make a lot more headway when we're coming together for a common goal, finding places that we, we do share a common goal instead of fighting each other the whole way. I.e. the safety of our children. Right. Yes, because I think that's what we all have in common. So, you know, they, they've really painted us all in a very broad brush. And not just us, the informed citizens and the public in general, but also the dissenting doctors, scientists, and researchers because... Contrary to what the media is showing you, there are doctors, scientists, researchers, journalists who question vaccines, and they are seen as a threat to this perception that all experts support vaccination, because that is the perception that we're given, that everyone agrees, Mm -hmm. there's no one who disagrees with this, that vaccines are safe and effective, and if they do, they're a quack. Mm -hmm. End of story, case closed. Full stop. Which is really, that's pulling us away from making progress in scientific inquiry. We have a gap in knowledge because we're suppressing any sort of dissent. And it discourages people from looking at certain issues and pursuing certain topics. And so not only are the scientists and the doctors, you know, the experts being shamed out of speaking up or questioning, but also the general public sees that and they think, well, if they're being, you know, ostracized and they're an expert while I certainly can't say anything which is unfortunate so so unfortunately I guess the CDC has a lack of loud public voices but I find that strange since everywhere we turn there is vaccine propaganda in favor of vaccination and yeah, I mean, I think the reason maybe they don't have that voice is because they failed to complete those safety reports for 30 years. I don't, I don't know. know. It could have something to do with it. Um, it so what do we do now? Like that's, uh, we've given you a, a lot of information. Like what can you do? Um, because we do want to at least acknowledge the World Health Organization, um, you know, you've made these global health threats. At the very least, it would be wise to separate into two categories, one from developing nations and one from a developed nation, um, because we face very different threats. And we, even if they are the same threat, we would, our, our, um, the way that we would respond to it or have the ability to respond to it are different in, in developing versus underdeveloped. And, um, but if we're going to look at just, you know, a developing nation like the United States, perhaps, you know, one of the top um, threats to our health um, in general, um, I think it's a number three leading cause of death. What is it, Samantha? Medical error. Medical error. 
225,000 plus deaths each year. And those are conservative numbers. Yeah. So, um, I, uh, I think, I think we've got a lot of headway to make in terms of just health care, quote unquote, in our country in general. Um, so, um, again, and we're not calling for the abolishment of modern medicine. I just, I, I like to throw that in there cause someone's going to say it. Also, I don't think we even mentioned, I've always forget to do this. I am not a doctor. Samantha is not a doctor. Please do not see this as any medical advice. Please make informed decisions with a trusted medical provider. Medical provider. Yeah. I say trusted, trusted medical provider. <laughs> um, anyway, so uh, the the article says that we um, the next the next contagion is going to be um, or the next major disease outbreak will not be due to a lack of preventative technology, um, but to an emotional contagion digitally enabled. All right, so digitally enabled folks, what can you do? Um, first of all, I would advise everybody to share this post and or podcast um, with a fellow discerning advocate for medical freedom. That's the bottom line. Find your common ground. Um, register an account with uh, the National Vaccine Information Center. It's nvic.org. And you can go up and see like state-specific state things. You, When you register an account, you can say, you know, what state and district you're in, and it will populate um, current legislation. Um, you know, they're on top of everything that would affect any sort of encroachment on your rights as a um, as a parent or as a patient with with vaccination, um, you know, sending your kid to daycare or school, or if they're trying to remove exemptions, if they're adding stuff to um, to the schedule, etc. Um, and then I cannot stress this enough: if you do, if you feel as though you cannot talk um, about this in public, the the one thing you can do that nobody else will know about is that you email. Um, I say email and write, send an actual physical letter, um, print out some of the studies that, that you find. Then we've linked to a lot of them on our post and mail them to your representatives. And so we've linked like how you can find who your state senators and representative are, write to your governor, just flood all their offices, like write one single letter and send um, copies of it to everybody. We want to inundate them and let them know that we are concerned. We are concerned with things like the um, the lack of inert placebo controls, the fact that there is no unvaccinated versus vaccinated studies, the removal, uh, to call for the removal of pharmaceutical influence on all fronts. Let them know that you are, that you are intelligent, that you are educated, and your concern for your child um, is, is, um, you know, is growing by the day and that uh, mandates to vaccination are um, inhumane. Is that is that the word I'm looking for? Um, irresponsible. irresponsible. It's a uh, dishonest. It, yes, it, they're unjustified. Pick a pick. <laughs> I can pick keep going. And um, and I California, your governor has just appointed California's California's first state surgeon general. What that means, I don't know. A lot of people are nervous about this because it's the first ever. Um, I did take a look at who, who, who she was. Her name is Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris. She's a pediatrician. She'll be sworn in on February 11th. I don't have any contact information for her. If anybody does, please send it to me and I'll include it. Um, the governor's announcement said that her work will focus on combating the root causes of serious health conditions like adverse child experiences and toxic stress. So this, she... Um, 
uh, it comes from the Center for Youth Wellness, where she is the founder and CEO. And on the main page, as of right now, I even took a screenshot, um, it acknowledges that getting shots at the doctor is a source of toxic stress in children. So I almost feel like that's a little bit of an open door for us to have that conversation with her. Don't blow, I mean, when you're writing people, don't blow them up and call them stupid. That's called ad hominem attacks. You want to attack the message, not the messenger. You want to, uh, you know, send your fight, your concerns with fact. You aren't attacking yeah. that person saying, I can't believe you voted yes on SB277. You're such a moron. You're not doing that. Okay. You're not yeah. going to make any headway. I like to approach it and just assume that maybe they've just never heard this side of, you know, because they are in, inundated often. If you're in politics at all, you're often inundated with the people who have the money, which is the pharmaceutical mm-hmm. industry. So maybe they just never just walk into it assuming that they just don't know. Right. Have a conversation. Don't treat them yes. like they know when they're deliberately evil. But pretend, you know, you, there's a new mom who's coming to you that knows you have information and she says, I'm just looking for information. Can you share it with me? And share it with her in a way that's, you know, educational and not um, just, there's a conspiracy in the government. And, you know, we're just, we're not going to make any yeah. headway with that. And then I, I just cannot say this enough is don't assume that everybody else who's listening to this is going to do it. I am just begging you that you, if you specifically have a concern that you write, that you call, that you email, do whatever you can to, um, because there can sometimes be this collective, um, like you assume, you know, so many thousand people heard or listened and everybody else is going to do it. So then nobody does it. So I would just take that responsibility of anything you can do is that that's, um, that's my main, uh, request. Yeah, absolutely. Talk about trolls. Yeah. Let's talk about trolls. So don't engage hate with hate. I feel like we can't say that enough. We don't endorse that kind of behavior from either side We just want people to read the data. This is about two things, tact and facts. So approaching it tactfully, using grace, being kind. No one ever says, oh, I changed my mind because you called me an idiot. So yeah, I totally see it now. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, and don't engage people who are just trolling you just to be purposely nasty and hateful. If they have no intention of having a productive discussion with you, just feel free to block and move on. You know, you can tell if the intention is just to bully or shame you or whether they're going to be open to it. But I would encourage you to, you know, be discerning and do try to build bridges where you can, because I think that we have more common ground than the media would have you believe. Yes. And then I just want to stress, um, as, as, a, as a fellow parent to other parents out there, outside of just a few situations, like, you know, certain doctor's appointments and, um, you know, submission for certain grades at school, you are not obligated to share your private health information, including vaccination history on you or your children. And so when your mother-in-law or your um, sister, whoever is asking, you know, oh, do you, did your kids receive XYZ vaccine? You don't need to tell them and you can choose whatever words you want to, whether it's, um, that's none of your business or I'm not sure, or they have everything they need. Um, whatever it is that, um, you, you just need to understand that that choice is yours, but just consider that these are your children and this is their private health information. So, and I added this quote, I didn't, I didn't share this with you, but I was, um, I saw that, that, um, Healthline had interviewed, um, 
Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who is, um, he was the founder of the Mercury Project, which is now renamed to the Children's Defense of... Children's Health Ch- Defense, Yeah, I Children's think? Health Defense. And he has essentially taken on, this is what he wants to do for, you know, the rest of his career is focus on, um, you know, toxicity for children, including, you know, things like... Um, uh, just dangerous ingredients in vaccines. And they had interviewed him about this, this latest article um, by the, well, I guess it was more about the who the um, World Health Organization claims. And so his quote is, I'm not surprised because the who has devolved from a sterling public health agency to a subsidiary of the pharmaceutical industry. We're seeing more and more orchestrated efforts by the industry to not only co-opt health officials, but to control international health policies. Um, he said that the agency ignores research and pushes vaccines that haven't been properly vetted, as we've seen. And, you know, if you've listened to this, off to this point, um, they haven't been vetted using their own gold uh, standard of safety testing methods. And then his quote, parents have an obligation to be skeptical. They have an obligation to protect their children. And that, if anything, is our common ground, is we have an obligation to protect our children and um, and mandating. Yeah. And that includes protecting yourself, too. A lot of people don't realize that, but what you do for your body affects, even if you don't have children yet, because a lot of, you know, a lot of what is said in this movement, sometimes I feel like you think because you don't have kids yet that it doesn't apply to you or because you don't plan on having kids that it doesn't apply to you. Trust me, if it's not this, it will be something else. And if you are planning on having kids, what happens to your body matters because Mm -hmm. if you are going to have biological children, you're giving them your DNA, your toxicity, et cetera. Agreed. Start less time than we so, recorded. It's everyone. Yesterday. It's everyone. So that is um, that's awesome. Let's just say that. Um, so anyway, um, yeah. Again, we have the post up. Um, and if you feel so obligated to share it, um, we would love the information to go to um, as many people as possible. Even if they may not be open to hearing about it now, at least some of this information could. Um, plant a seed they may come back to you in six months they may come back to you in six years they may never come back to you but you started something and i'm not we're not necessarily saying you need to share our post only because we know it's very dense but you can take some of the links um, and sources and um, studies that are linked here and review them yourself and if you feel like you know that's something that you want to share and or send off to your you know political peeps then do that all right all right, Samantha. Well, thank you for, you know, basically Absolutely. giving me your life for the past week and working on this with me. And, um, and so now, uh, we're going to, we're going to go take a nap. It's my pleasure. So we'll talk to you guys later. Bye. You know where to find us. Yep. Thanks everybody.